From Fierce Healthcare, I'm Teresa Carey, and this is Podnosis. Like every other industry, healthcare is going digital. Technology is being used for everything, from lowering clinician workload to reducing disparities. In 2017, a new type of technology in medicine emerged, prescription digital therapeutics, or PDTs. These are software-based treatments delivered on devices that help address the behavioral dimensions of health conditions. Unlike other health and wellness apps, PDTs are a new therapeutic class, like a drug or biologic. They are highly regulated by the Food and Drug Administration and must demonstrate safety and efficacy in clinical trials. At their best, they can help enable access to care and potentially improve inequities. For example, they can treat irritable bowel syndrome or substance use disorder by delivering cognitive behavioral therapy to people where they are. At their worst, some payers aren't reimbursing for them. To date, there have been dozens of PDTs approved. However, there are still obstacles getting in the way of healthcare stakeholders adopting PDTs. Christina Brezing is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Columbia University and a research scientist at New York State Psychiatric Institute. She talked with Anastasia Gladkovskia about the challenges with PDTs. Here they are. Hi, Christina. It's really nice to chat with you. It's nice to chat with you as well. So prescription digital therapeutics are relatively new to healthcare, about five, six years old, right? Mm -hmm. And um, just wondering, as a trained physician and a researcher, what you make of their potential in healthcare? You know, I became very interested in this um, just because it's a huge paradigm shift in healthcare. Um, And if I look back, you know, just through my own personal uh, evolution, say over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years with technology, I've become dependent on it in so many other facets of my life that this idea that there could be uh, treatment or therapeutic software utilized in healthcare um, was very interesting and I thought had a lot of potential. And the other reason I became interested in it is, as you mentioned, Anastasia, the first uh, prescription digital therapeutic was actually a product called Reset. It was approved by the FDA in 2017 for substance use disorders broadly, and then a specific form of RESET, RESET RESET-O for opioids, got approved for opioid use disorders specifically. Um, And the cool thing with this is, you know, it's very much serving and like kind of aligning with a lot of trends, which is that it's, you know, fully accessible through technology, so through your smartphone or through your computer or online. Um, It has a dashboard or an interface for both patients and providers. There is a lot of monitoring actually that could be done through Reset. So specifically in the substance use disorder field, there's urine drug testing. So you could basically upload data on drug testing and and self-reports of substance use and essentially track in, you know, closer to real time in vivo what's going on both in terms of for the patient but also for feedback from the provider. And so the potential of it, you know, when executed probably, you know, really well is that, you know, it would be affordable. So generally technology, especially over time, gets cheaper and cheaper. 
that it would be widely accessible, that it would be evidence-based because it has to go through, you know, a rigorous uh, FDA pipeline to approval. Mm -hmm. um, and then it has the potential to adapt and personalize medical care um, as both patients and providers are putting this data um, into this like continuous monitoring sort of platform. Um, and the other interesting potential with it is that you could potentially have interventions and communications that would help with other supports in the traditional healthcare system to, you know, implement a, a treatment plan change or, you know, add on, you know, another therapeutic support that may not already be in place based on the data that the, the, the PDT is collecting. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was, it felt like there was this real kind of opportunity. And I still, th I think there is great potential with this, you know, huge frame shift and thinking of PDTs, um, as providing more affordable, valuable care that's effective and flexible, that's accessible, personalized. Actually, there's huge potential for PDTs. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, that was such a helpful overview and I'm, I'm happy that you, um, kind of started at the beginning and um, mentioned paratherapeutics reset, uh, sort of like the first digital prescription digital therapeutic that got FDA clearance. Um, so I wanted to just zo zoom in a little bit on some of these facets that you mentioned that in an ideal world would make PDTs really strong. So accessibility, affordability, um, and you know, I because I came across you um, from a paper that you authored recently on the rise of PDTs in behavioral health, and um, in that paper you noted that even though like most Americans have smartphones, there is some concern for access among you know the elderly or lower income adults, and also providers going through medical school or nursing school, they're not getting trained on this technology because it is so new. So they might not feel comfortable prescribing this to patients in the first place. So can you talk about some of these uh, potential barriers to adoption or to uptake of PDTs? Yeah, so I think you, I mean, you worded it so well. So when we think about this big paradigm shift um, for healthcare using something like a PDT, like you, you named basically most of the players. So there's one, the regulatory pathway. Then there are providers, as you mentioned, patients, and then who's paying for it or the payers. And so we'll start maybe with the regulatory piece, and I'll go through each of those kind of key players in this system and, and how this has posed obstacles. Um, and likely, ultimately, and again, I don't work for paratherapeutics. I don't know exactly what happened inside, but why they struggled and ultimately went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. um, so when you think about an FDA pathway to approval, it's, in, it's incredibly rigorous. It's going through enough um, of each stage of development, and it's expensive. It's expensive research and development to go through clinical trials to demonstrate efficacy for a specific indication and in a very specific, for very specific software as a medical device, right? So you can't have a bunch of changes or updates or make it too different from the original product as you're going through these different phases. Hmm. So the FDA has actually even acknowledged this and started launching some different pilot programs to explore innovative and new ways to address how do we incorporate and approve and, ad and adapt essentially a, you know, 40 plus year old framework that's, you know, maybe 
as needed for medications or surgical devices, but we may need something different for emerging technologies. So that's one of the first obstacles, I think. I, so the next piece that you mentioned that's very important are providers. Like this was, I, this is something that is completely novel to think about writing a prescription for a software or, you know, in right. some cases there's, there's a PDT that's actually a video game for pediatric mm. ADHD um, called Endeavor RX, which is done by a company, Akili, who I think may also be struggling in different ways, um, but in terms of economically. So like to, to have physicians or nurse practitioners or physician assistants even think to prescribe this, like they're going to have to be trained on it. So there's that part. You need to make sure physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners are thinking about it and then prescribing it because that's a huge kind of gate. They're, they're the gatekeepers of it. Like you can't access these prescriptions without a prescription. Yeah. And then the, the next player, the patients. So even with reset, for example, it had a ton of really good evidence in clinical trials, but it can be, if a patient just stops, if maybe they download it or maybe they don't even download it and they never input data, like mm -hmm. how are people following up on that or incorporating it? And by people, I mean, you know, obviously the providers and their practices. Mm -hmm. And one issue that I think came up with Reset, because I've, you know, looked at the, the PDT myself, is that, you know, it has un an amazing wealth of information and it absolutely is evidence-based CBT with contingency management for substance use disorders. But it's not as entertaining or engaging as a lot of other things on my, on my, <laughs> on my cell phone mm. or my smartphone. And so one of the things that, at least in the case of Reset, and I think this is why, you know, some um, PDT companies are looking at uh, video games or virtual reality headsets or other, is to try to gamify them a bit and make them more engaging. But patient engagement was, I think, a big component to this, because even if it's very effective, if it's not really getting implemented into the patient's life in a way that they want to keep using it, it makes it hard to have a real effect. And then, you know, the final piece of it is the payers, right? So that was probably ultimately, you know, one of the, it, and is one of the biggest obstacles to overcome is who's paying for the treatment. Like, even if it's much less expensive, out-of-pocket expense for reset was still, you know, north of a thousand dollars. Like that's very expensive yeah. for a patient to pay mm -hmm. out-of-pocket offhand. So you need insurance or some sort of you know, you could think creatively about where and how you could do this, but you need either, you know, some sort of commercial payer, either commercial insurance or, you know, Medicare or Medicaid to help with reimbursement. And I think this ties into kind of what does CM, ultimately CMS, because if CMS approves it or improves reimbursement or coverage for PDTs, other commercial insurance providers will follow. Mm -hmm. But what happened was only a minority of commercial insurance providers agreed to provide any reimbursement. Yeah. Or coverage for PDTs. And of course, Pair Therapeutics, which you mentioned went bankrupt recently, their yes. CEO blamed um, this lack of reimbursement as one of the catalysts for the company's downfall. Yes. And I, it, I absolutely, I'm sure it was. But payers, you know, in all fairness to them, what kind of benchmarks do they need in order to provide approval for a treatment, right? Because ultimately, if yeah. it's CMS, government, you know, taxpayers are paying for it. Mm -hmm. So they want to see that the product will reduce, that there's some sort of cost savings in other ways. If a patient has access to a PDT, do they have less emergency visits or do they require, like, can that supplement 
psychotherapy with a, a, a private therapist that, or, you know, an, even an in-network in therapist that would mm -hmm. cost, you know, much more. Um, and Congress tried actually in 2022, and it, but they, they started to sort of toss around and look into a bill called the Access to the Access to PDT Act or Prescription Digital Therapeutics Act of 2022, which would have expanded Medicare coverage to start, allowing for some reimbursement of PDTs and related services, um, but it never went anywhere. Um, and I think that would be kind of, I mean, CMS would definitely be, and Congress would be a key player in this space um, to get sort of more widespread adoption. Right. And it's interesting because some commercial payers and even some state Medicaid plans uh, currently reimbursed for PDTs, but, um, you know, because Medicare is such a big part of, yeah. of this space and because they don't reimburse, um, then like the pair therapeutic CEO said, it just wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to, to talk about an interesting example, Applied VR, which has successfully mm -hmm. actually gotten reimbursement from CMS for its VR because it, it basically tied its software to its, its headset so yeah. well that it, it basically met the requirements for being classified as a medical device, right? So yep. that's that seems like a very, very complicated option for PDT companies, but nonetheless, it is a temporary option. I guess, what do you make of that? And um, would there have to be a separate category for PDT, like reimbursement that for companies that are not f uh, choosing that approach? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, it's again, like, PDTs, like you're highlighting, are very broad, right? So the virtual reality set, um, I can't remember offhand, I vaguely remember it was to help with some sort of vision deficit. Like, you're right. It's like, that's a tangible hardware. That's a hardware device. And then it has the software, obviously, implemented into the device. Ultimately, like, depending, you know, looking at the PDTs more broadly or the industry more broadly... Like I think getting creative, whether it's with a blockbuster product or a really cool product that um, physicians and patients get excited about and really fulfill an unmet need um, that is engaging and people are willing to use, um, in addition to thinking of maybe more creative pathways to show this proof of concept because of how much of a frame shift this is in healthcare that companies or people interested in this space are going to have to get creative. Yeah. Pair eventually ended up launching a direct-to-consumer offering, right? Do you mm -hmm. feel like an option like that would um, perhaps uh, dampen or, or hinder revenue for PDT companies because it's too, too much effort to scale while you're also trying to go through the regulatory route, which is complex enough on its own? What do you make of that, that offering? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, and I, I think that ultimately, if it's helpful to patients um, and, and just directly accessing the therapeutic on their own, and it's safe enough, right? Like that it's not, there's not some risk to taking on um, that independently. Like, I think it's, it's definitely an interesting option. I think it sort of takes away, though, that goal of with this prescriptional digital therapeutic as being incorporated into the overall healthcare structure with a provider, with EHRs, with the monitoring and incorporation of data. Because at that point, unless, and again, like these platforms have the potential to generate a huge amount of data, um, you know, who's monitoring it or interpreting it? And maybe it's just the company. And I, I wasn't, I didn't ever interface with the direct to consumer pair product. 
Um, so maybe it was generating graphs or feedback or different information for the patient to then, you know, share themselves with their providers or just mm. for their own sort of, you know, internal feedback process. But um, it takes away sort of that collaborative approach um, in healthcare. And it's kind of, it's, not, it's kind of a separate thing. But what I will say is I do think this is a, like the first wave, like every, like most of the folks and players, like we said, the first FDA approved PDT was 2017. This is, this is very new. Mm-hmm. This is pioneering. So I am very optimistic that over time, this will continue to develop. Um, and that the second and third and fourth waves, I think will likely have a greater impact, but that, you know, just the complexity of, you know, introducing a product like this with all the different components, I think just makes it, you know, complicated. Yeah. Okay. And I know we've already kind of touched on this, but in terms of some of the most critical things that need to happen to help keep this new emerging, um, sector afloat and, and to really, um, help make progress in healthcare, what do you think needs to happen besides, you know, CMS approving reimbursement pathways and, um, I don't know what, what other policies perhaps could, could make, help alleviate yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, I think it also could just be as straightforward as, uh, you know, people, consumers, patients, and providers becoming more um, informed on this and educated on it. PDGs for cardiovascular syndromes, IBS, diabetes, you know, pain. Um, but my sense is, is that people, providers and patients included, like just don't really know or even think about them. Um, so I think getting it more widespread in terms of awareness as this as an option, because if patients start asking for them and, you know, the providers start recommending them, I also think that would be a place to apply pressure to, to move towards reimbursement um, and for, for insurance companies and CMS to, to cover these products. Mm, and that's treatments. a great point. Yeah. So, um, you know, watching where the market goes in terms of provider demand and patient interest, and that can help kind of create a compelling case for payers and governments. I like that. Great. Well, thank you so much, Christina. Those are all the questions for today. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Next up, we're going to dive into the world of PBMs. But before we do that, I want to remind you of a special series that we recently released on our sister podcast, The Top Line. You may have heard a hint about it in a recent episode of Podnosis, but Fierce Pharma's Fraser Kansteiner did a deep dive into Narcan, the opioid overdose drug that was recently approved for over-the-counter sales. So if you missed that series, check out the top line. We'll release the third and final episode in that series this Friday at 6 a.m. Pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs, are feeling the heat. Lawmakers and regulators are looking closely at how PBMs impact drug prices. So what are PBMs? Well, PBMs negotiate with drug makers and pharmacies. They act as middlemen in this process, and they can impact what drugs patients are prescribed and how much they will cost. But what they do exactly can be unclear or confusing for patients. So lawmakers are calling them out. This spring, the Senate Finance Committee hearing approved a bill that would ban specific PBM pricing strategies. The bill also mandates that the PBMs reveal more information on how they pay pharmacies for medications. Also earlier this spring, 
the Ohio Attorney General filed a lawsuit that accused two PBMs of illegally driving up drug prices so that patients who need life-saving medications like insulin end up footing the bill. A.J. Loyacono co-founded Capital Rx, a startup health tech PBM, in 2017 to disrupt the PBM industry. He recently spoke to Fierce Healthcare's Frank Diamond. Here they are. A.J. Loyacona, thanks so much for joining us here at Podnosis. Thanks for having me, Frank. PBMs aren't feeling much love these days. Why is that? Well, I think it's a reflection of two things. One, it appears as if drug prices are always going up and becoming more expensive for patients at the register. And I think the other one is the broad industry, the consumers, the employer sponsors that have benefit plans are starting to recognize how overly complex and opaque the pricing system is in the United States and that they're blaming finally what is in charge of the U.S. supply chain. The PBM, the pharmacy benefit manager, is the most influential member of the supply chain, which is just a fancy way of saying, how do we get drugs that are manufactured into the hands of a patient? You know, I always say if you go into a pharmacy and you reach for a bottle of Tylenol or Advil, something magical happens. Doesn't matter if you're insured or uninsured, you work for the biggest employer or the smallest, it's the same price. And you very easily can understand the price. If you pick up Tylenol at an independent pharmacy or a big box store, you understand the relative price comparison. But in prescriptions, it's so complex and that the PBM industry at their sole discretion could change the price at any time. So two people, same plan, walking into a pharmacy for the same drug, different price. Why? And it's not because of the drug price is changing. It's solely for profit. And so what we wanted to change is one major fundamental difference is that if you're the administrator of a plan, and that's what a PBM does, a PBM provides hundreds of invaluable administrative tasks, eligibility file feeds, accumulators, plan design, network management, reimbursement, drug utilization review, quantity limits, prior authorization, all of these administrative tasks, any employer group or plan sponsor needs. But what they didn't need is for the PBM to suddenly start making money on drugs. And, and that was the main business model that we had to move from. So part one is, I believe if you are a PBM, you should not be allowed to make money on drugs. You should just be paid a flat administrative fee. That's what you're being charged to do. PBMs have unfortunately devolved into, let's call it what they are. They're hedge funds that make money on drug pricing. And you shouldn't be able to mark up a drug. I don't get it. Like if you think about it in the medical industry, if I'm a medical carrier, I can't mark up a procedure why the heck do we allow entities to mark up a prescription solely for profit? It's ridiculous. So when I started in this industry, Frank, in the year 2000, the drug industry was like $100, $120 billion. Today, it's $600 billion. Have we increased our population in the U.S. by 500%? The answer is no. So what's happening is it's the perfect industry. You just make more and more money by doing nothing. And so the, my point here is my competitors did not innovate. They consolidated. They just bought more and more PBMs and carriers. And then we woke up one day and we had three entities. 
that control 80% of the processing and 90% of the purchasing power in the supply chain. And they had no interest in becoming more efficient, so they scaled with people. That also coupled with the fact there was never a down market event. And what I mean by that is, I don't care if we're talking about the banking industry or real estate, there are moments in any industry that something shakes the industry to its core and it must reinvent itself. It must become more efficient. We've never had this with pharmacy benefits because it has the luxury of this inelastic demand curve and you magically make more money every year under the current system. Okay, um, sticking with PBM competition, uh, there's been a trend in recent years, you well know, of big insurance companies merging with or buying PBMs becoming huge PBMs in the process. There's Aetna slash Caremark, United Healthcare slash OptumRx, Cigna slash Express Scripts. Uh, these mergers have raised concerns, as you can imagine. Who's in charge? In 2022, Aetna brought in $91.4 billion in revenue. Meanwhile, Caremark, Aetna's PBM arm, brought in over $169 billion in revenue. So the PBM division made $77 billion more than the healthcare division. So when a health insurer also functions as a PBM, who wins and who loses? And where does that leave legacy standalone PBMs and also startup PBMs like your company? I think what you're focusing in on is very important, Frank, which is where do large vertically integrated carriers make money? This is medical and pharmacy. And it's pharmacy. Their earnings are carried quarter over quarter by pharmacy. You know, and I think this is an important thing. Remember, 40 to 60% of earnings for publicly traded vertically integrated entities is coming from pharmacy, even though medical premiums are five times the size of pharmacy. And so it's important to remember where the real money is coming from, but they've painted themselves into a corner, is that the old model is really brittle. And what I mean by that is they have to continue to make the same or more money on this system. And, and this is fascinating. If you think about it, there's no more growth left in the business model for these large entities because there's nothing left. They can't buy what's left. It's either going to be an FTC violation or it's not for sale. It's a nonprofit. It's a blues plan or something. And this is important to remember because if you have no more growth left as a publicly traded company, you become an earnings model. How must I meet or exceed earnings? So when you see these publicly traded entities make 20% more earnings year over year, we should just all pause and identify what that is. They are taking 20% more money for the same service out of the patient and the plants. It is absurd. It's broken, but this is the opportunity. You're now seeing competitors like ourselves enter the market and demonstrate you don't have to use the old framework. You could still provide reasonable margins and benefits back to your shareholders but you must operate more efficiently. And this is what's been missing for far too long, Frank. Uh, employers, employers I've talked to, uh, they're losing sleep over the uh, budget-busting specialty drugs, the biosimilars, or well, the bio, biogenics, actually, and the biosimilars. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about the million-dollar drugs for unusual diseases. They account for 50% of the drug spend, even though they are just 2% of total prescriptions, according to the Department of Health and Human Services. This is one area where employers, 
would welcome some help from the government. Do you agree that the government should step in and help employers deal with this problem? And how would PBMs fit into such a rescue mission? I truly believe in market dynamics, free market economy, you know, let buyers and sellers freely communicate on price. I believe in most markets, if you observe it, if you have efficiency, again, communication between buyers and sellers, price settles itself very quickly. And so what I think the federal government should do is two things. I think one is the federal government should provide access to a national price so everyone can understand price. The same way we understand a 60 tablet bottle of Tylenol. Yeah, for 19 bucks, I'll, I'll buy that, but not for $180. That makes no sense to me. But the only reason why I understand that is because I can see price. I can compare it very easily. And so I think what the federal government has done is they've already created the foundation. Through CMS under HHS, they have what's called NADAC. National Average Drug Acquisition Cost. It's price reported in by, you know, let's just say 600 or so pharmacies across the country on a weekly basis. And this helps create a benchmark of fair price. What is the price of this thing? Because price does not exist today. We don't understand price. And what chance does the patient have if even the federal government doesn't really understand net price? And so what the federal government has done is, I think, a good thing is they have a framework, but they just have to take it to the next level, which is they need all pharmacies to report in for all drugs through all both mail, retail and specialty channels. So we now have a fair benchmark of what price is, because this helps protect the consumer from being punished under the current system where a PBM or carrier can magically change price at their sole discretion. And more importantly, they have a gag order on the pharmacies that they can't even explain what a fair price is. They're like, Shh, you must give me give them this price. So the first thing is, I think the suggestion is, Frank, is NADAC needs to be broadly adopted. And anyone, the way that you enforce this is you say, any pharmacy that benefits from Medicare or Medicaid dollars, you've got to report into NADAC. And that's a fair exchange. You're getting government business and government funds you need to report into this benchmark. That creates a fair benchmark. The second rule that the federal government must enforce is they need to make a separation. If you are a PBM, if you are an administrator of a plan, you should not be able to make money on drugs. The people that can make money on drugs are the manufacturer, the wholesaler, and the pharmacy. We must decouple these things because the inherent conflicts of, of interest, Frank, under a PBM, when they're both the fulfillment channel and they're making money on drugs and manufacturer-derived revenue, this is rebates and price protection and coupons and patient assistance, and we could go all day on these things, but let's just lump it together and say manufacturer money, that if you want to make money on manufacturers, you can't be an administrator because if I'm an administrator, I'm in charge of your formulary, which drugs you have access to. I also am in charge of clinical protocols, which member should receive this drug at a certain point. The approval of these drugs, because under the current model, Frank, the more expensive the drug, if you're making a percent of drug spend, you make more money, the more expensive drug. So you're absolutely right. Employers should be concerned about runaway costs on specialty drugs. But right now we have no check and balance. Because the person that makes money on more drugs at a higher velocity, at a higher price point being approved, 
are the same people that are in charge of slowing it down, having a rational, logical approach to the care of the patient, the outcome at the correct price point for the correct price of the drug. These things must be separate. So very simply, if you administrate a plan, it's what a PBM is tasked to do, you can't make money on drugs. These are the two things the federal government should do, and then let market dynamics take hold. Is the benchmark that you speak of, is that uh, necessary for capital RX to uh, earn a profit? Yeah, so for us, we make money on a flat administrative fee. So for us, the way that we operate on a lower administrative cost basis is efficiency, back to our Judy platform. We recognized what's been holding back this industry and its basic addiction to high drug costs and drug profits is they never could operate efficiently because they never invested in a modern technology platform. And I mean this as the administrative layer. It's all the hundreds of invisible tasks people can't see electronically and even people from a clinical perspective, operational, billing, finance, et cetera. So what we do at Capital Rx is we don't set price. We use NADAC. All of our customers get the same price. We use a single ledger model, which is our economics of what we get for purchasing power at retail, mail, specialty, and with manufacturers. We give the same price to all of our customers, and there's no difference. And this is what's important. So we have no conflict. Our job is just to provide the lowest price and the best service. We're also agnostic. I don't really care where someone fills their drug at the end of the day. My job is to be the best administrator of a plan. And what this does is at our organization, it's created extraordinary experiences. We have the highest customer service level. We have a net promoter score of 96 with our clients. We recently cleared 89 net promoter score in our call center. This is world-class customer service. And the reason why we're able to deliver on this is we've got no conflicts. We're not trying to hide anything. Our sole job is to delight the member in the plan and do what is right for that experience. And what we we realized early on is what patients just want is to be communicated with in a timely manner and be told the truth. And if you do these things, you're going to have an outsized experience and outsized results. This is an important moment in history where I think it's taken us 23 plus years at this point to finally focus on drug pricing, recognize there's a problem to see that the federal government, state legislation, regulatory bodies are leaning in with great interest and trying to find a way to reduce that cost burden for patients. And that is important. You're also seeing organizations like ourselves emerge, step forward, and present a differentiated service that is fully transparent using a single ledger that delivers reduced drug cost for the plan and the member and a better service experience. So I think the time is now, the industry is changing and for the better. AJ Loyacona of Capital RX, thank you so much for joining us here. Thank you for having me, Frank. It's been a pleasure. And that's Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find more news and stories at fiercehealthcare.com. Don't forget to tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.